0: Today's episode is brought to you by BCB Group. You're going to be hearing more about them later on in this interview, which begins right now. Extremely excited for this next interview with Mike Green, Portfolio Manager and Chief Strategist at Simplify Asset Management. Mike, welcome to Forward Guidance. Hey Jack, it's nice to see you again. So I want to start and ask you, because you know we've seen a lot of volatility December was kind of weird and then but starting in this year January we've had a pronounced sell off in equities with I guess high duration stocks like the tech stocks leading the way down also bonds have been selling off volatility has been rising and the culprit that has been uh, thrown at this is the fears of central central banks uh, taking away the punch bowl, you know, uh, short-term rates rising in, antici- in anticipation of the Federal Reserve hiking rates. And you know, you're someone who you definitely pay attention to central banks, but you also focus on the fundamentals, you focus on market structure. So I guess the first question I wanna ask you, Mike, is to what degree do you think the volatility we've been seeing in the market is due to fears of central bank uh, uh, taking away the punch bowl or is there something beneath the surface going on in the market structure that maybe you know the headlines aren't capturing?
1: So I, I think the answer is always that it's complicated, right, um, that there's a combination of the two. And so there's kind of this giant trifecta. There's the underlying dynamic of realized volatility is higher, right, which market makers have to respond to, to a certain extent. And then we also have earnings season directly ahead of us with the highest level of uncertainty about earnings that we've seen in a while, particularly coming out of the tech sector. Um, we have significant amount of uncertainty in terms of the Fed's next policy choice, which fits within the 30 day window currently of the VIX, right? Well, on a short term basis, um, I'm relatively not constructive, right? So, I mean, my general view is is that we've got two dynamics. One, um, people are going to have quite significant tax bills that they need to sell securities to meet in 2020 uh, in 2022 by March, basically. Um, I'm kind of looking for a march low in, in the US equity markets uh, and you know we'll see how much lower that is um, and I could be wrong by the way, right like it's entirely plausible that, that we we rotate higher. I, I would highlight that as I said, like it feels like the professional and active manager community has gotten very bared up on technology. They've gotten very bared up on you know the work from home type dynamic and are aggressively rotating towards a, you know, uh, an inflationary materials type dynamic, late cycle, and just highlight very similar to the behavior that we saw in June 2008. You know, the the thing that most people who who know me um, have encountered me either in the Bitcoin space or through my market structure work, where I focus on the dynamics of the growth of passive investing. One of the components of passive investing is you can think of it almost like a Uh, a contributor to heterogeneity in in a population sample, right? So we all know that if everybody behaves exactly the same way, instead of continuous behavior, you get discrete behavior. That's what we call volatility, right? A jump from one level to another level before a transaction can occur. Because everybody basically decides to go one way or another at the same time. When you introduced passive into the market, you created a systematic buyer that simply said, did you give me cash? If so, then buy. Did you ask for cash? If so, then sell. As that investor grows in size, right, as long as they're not causing tremendous distortions through index construction, as they did in the late 1990s, that's actually a contributor to lower volatility in the market right? Because what you have is you have a diverse and heterogeneous reason why people might be buying and selling. And in particular, it's very helpful when you have that sort of you know, non-thoughtful or um, completely inelastic buyer who just is always there as a baseline bid, right? That's very vol dampening. The problem is, is when that buyer becomes large enough, right? it then becomes actually a dominant feature in the market. So when they show up to buy, or when they fail to show up to buy, it can cause catastrophic events. It's a little bit like learning how to you know, do a tightrope with a net. The minute the net has been removed, while psychologically, while physically nothing has happened to the act of walking over the tightrope, the consequences of falling have risen dramatically, right? And so you actually see this in simulations. Once you cross about 25 to 30% passive, the markets begin to increase in volatility. By my math, that happened somewhere around 2016, 2017. Um, And we've continued to push higher than that. That For me, that's part of the reason why we haven't seen the retreat to lower levels of volatility. And why when we came into this year, after seeing the tax loss selling for many of the names, the Kathy Wood type names that struggled throughout 2021, seeing that somewhat crescendo in the November, December time period as first mutual funds, and then individuals and hedge funds went to maximize effectively the tax efficiency of what was otherwise a quite spectacular year. Um, for most investors, at least, You know they held off on selling the Microsoft's, Apples, etc. of the world. And one of the first things that I had anticipated that was going to come into this year was the possibility that people would then turn around and sell the leaders. And I think that's really what we've seen so far this year is a rotation out of that leadership that people had resisted selling because they didn't want to incur a taxable gain into um, what I would describe as the flavor du jour, which is the inflation trades, right? Whether that's energy or anything else. Uh, and we're seeing evidence that a lot of that positioning has gotten extremely stretched, right? So hedge funds are now more overweight energy than they've been at any time since the summer of 2008, right? prior to the collapse in June, 2008. Uh, I I don't know if the same thing is going to play out, but it does feel like that rotation, that motion around it with the baseline component of a larger passive universe that's just not there to change their allocations in any meaningful way or to absorb the money that's coming in is responsible for the higher level of volatility that we've seen. About a third of the increase Right. So if I if I kind of think about that dynamic and I go from a baseline of 10 to 12 on the VIX and non recessionary conditions, and I push that up to the 18 to 20 level, which is kind of my model for where the baseline should be today. And then I jump to kind of where we are right now at the 28, 29 sort of level on the VIX, the dynamic of um, the incremental component associated with a Fed that has come through very aggressively. And the dynamics of, you know, is or is not Russia going to invade Ukraine? Has it already invaded Ukraine, Ukraine, which would certainly seem to be what, what is actually in play? They've done it by de facto, by recognizing the independent republics. So they'll never actually invade Ukraine. They'll just, you know, help their friends out in Donetsk and Lubansk, right? Um, but the um, I, I would suggest that about a third of it appears tied to that, and that unfortunately sets the stage for a feedback mechanism. If something were to happen, if the US were to choose to aggressively respond to Russia beyond you know, the threat of sanctions, um, or if, as I kind of suspect, this is more of a test of the West's response function and a distraction for the much bigger game that's being played in, in the South China Sea, um, you know, then you could see a very significant move in volatility. Like that geopolitical dynamic, I think, would be quite substantive. We have significant uncertainty in terms of Russia. So we've got a lot of events that are sitting right out there. And it's reflected in the in the fall surface where the front futures or the VIX itself is deeply um, in backwardation, right? So the, the front part of the VIX curve the UX1 futures and the VIX spot are actually sitting significantly above the UX2 futures, UX3 futures, etc. But that longer term vol is kind of sitting in that same 25, 26 range that it sat in broadly for the past year and a half. Um, so we're not seeing a ton of evidence that, it, you know, the markets are treating this as anything other than there are some very important events directly in front of us. But again that back end vol right at 25 is dramatically higher than the back end vol of 17 18 that we saw in that 26 2017 20, early 2018 time period prior prior to Volmageddon.
0: Just to provide a few a uh, little bit of context for the audience uh, implied the VIX measures implied volatility which is 30-day uh, implied volatility for the S&P 500 major stock index. Uh, what does the mar- what is the market pricing in for what the volatility will be over the next 30 days, whereas realized volatility is what the actual volatility is. And then there's uh, futures on the VIX, which is what do the, the market thinks the VIX will be at at that point. Um, and again, you can't trade the spot.
1: Um, if I look simply at the negative carry associated with the VIX curves, right now it's about minus 3% a month, so 36% annualized. That's a very painful... Um, hedge to hold in place. And likewise, that high level of implied volatility, exactly as you were describing with the dynamics of realized versus implied, means that something very significant has to happen. That tends to be a difficult condition to put onto the market. right? So it, it indicates that people have by and large, taken down risk, and I think we know this. If we look at some of the strategies like vault targeting or CTAs, et cetera, their their positioning is not aggressive. So, you know, I I think unfortunately where we are right now is we're in kind of a no man's land, very similar to I would describe it as, you know, late October of twenty eighteen, where we're just not sure what's going to happen next, right? Is the Fed going to hike 50 basis points? Is Russia going to formalize the recognition of the breakaway republics in the Ukraine and occupy them? Is that going to then lead to a NATO response and an escalation, right? Are we going to see a Taiwan incident emerge in the aftermath of the Olympics, which were broadly panned, and I think many people view them as a bit of a slap in the face to China. Do they feel the need to reassert themselves? So the, the quick answer is we don't know, right? Um, and that's what I would suggest is actually being priced into the VIX curve is a lot of we don't know. If earnings end up being okay, if Russia doesn't invade, if Taiwan doesn't turn into a further incident, if you know all sorts of things don't end up occurring, right? So you effectively have now a negative test, the, the election of 2016, the election of 2020. The election of 2016, if you remember, the headlines were, you know, Justin Wolfers and and others had come out with, you know, simulations that suggested that if Trump was elected because of the behavior of Trump scoring points in the debate, right, you know, against Hillary Clinton, if Trump was elected, the markets were going to crash. Right. Well, when the markets didn't crash, the markets had to rip back in the opposite direction because it meant that everybody had prepared in advance for this expected crash. Right. Same thing, I would argue, is happening here where we're setting up the conditions for a sell the news under almost any scenario. If the Fed hikes 50 basis points, how is the market going to interpret that? I would argue that the market is going to interpret that as, okay, the Fed has hiked 50 basis points and now they're gonna slow down, right? And so is that treated bearishly or is that treated bullishly? I think there's a very reasonable chance it's treated bullishly if they don't hike 50 basis points. Oh, we were all worried about nothing, right? They're going to go more slowly and the markets could very well route like the only conditions under which the markets sell off aggressively from these levels is if things turn out worse than we expect. Right. So instead of the markets currently pricing in basically 38 basis points of a 50 basis point hike for March, if the Fed hikes 50 basis points, we'd probably sell off a little bit and then the markets would say, "Okay, that's not quite that bad. Right. Um, if Russia were to invade, I, again, I think it depends, but it's, it's just, it's hard to create the conditions under which people get even more over their skis, you know, in terms of bearishness or bullishness on oil, et cetera. And it's one of the reasons why I highlight something like the fourth quarter of 2018, because the same conversations were in play, right? You know, if, if the 10-year goes above 3%, it's the end of the bull market in bonds right? That was the mantra that was in place at that point. If oil goes above $70 a barrel, that's it. Lights out, it's going to 100 because, you know, we all know all the problems that exist. The, the um, uh, Donald Trump is engaged in MMT and he's cut taxes and, you know, the world is, is going to explode to the top side and inflation is coming. And it was, by the way. I mean, we saw prices rising even back then. So, I mean, I'm just, I, it's hard for me to get too worked up when we're already in a condition where the VIX is at these levels, right? That's very, very hard to sustain. You can reverse engineer what that's telling you a market is trying to price for the next 30 days, right? It's somewhere in the neighborhood of the market being expected to move 2.25% every single day. That's a lot of movement, man. That's really, really hard. Um, and it, it has to be cumulative, too. So if you get a day where the markets move 50 basis points, in order to sustain that, you got to have another day where the market's going to move three plus. Like it's it's just hard. It's hard to maintain that.
0: Mm. Your comparison to October 2018 is is really interesting. I think that was a, probably about the the middle either the, the end of the beginning of the sell-off that started with the, the Fed continuing to hike rates ultimately led into the Powell pivot in December uh, when you had a, a peak to trough decline in the S&P 500. I don't know the exact number, but you know-
1: it's like 19.7% or yeah, something. Yeah, I was gonna yeah. say 18
0: to 20, yeah. Um. So do, so if we're in October, and if, you're, if your analogy is perfect, that means we would have, uh, you know, maybe uh, at least another month of a sell-off before a, a Powell pivot again. What do you think the odds are of that? And, you know, you, you brought in to also the uh, 50 basis point hike in March. What about if you just zoom out into how far the market thinks the the Fed will hike the highest point, the terminal rate, which is, you know, about two to 2.2 percent? You know, can the market handle that? Um, and, and and yeah.
1: Yeah, no, it's it, So it's an interesting question. So um, I, I think that there's a couple of clues that I would point to. Um. And others have have hit on this really, really well. Jim Bianco um, has been one of the people making the great point that the fact that Powell has not been reconfirmed and won't be reconfirmed until after the actions in March, right? So this is a very unique situation in which a Fed chair is de facto in place, but is not actually approved for his next term, right? Um, How much that's playing into the political realities of being forced to do something, right? Don't just stand there, do something sort of thing is very difficult to know. I know that the people that I interact with in this administration, they're all quite concerned because people feel very frozen and the dynamics of the fed being forced to do something create some optionality for the democrats to say, well, at least we're trying to do something, right? We're, you know, we're trying to hit it. If it blows up, then it's Powell's fault right? Um and he can be fired um, or not reappointed. Um, if it ends up working out brilliantly, then the Dems solve the problem and the midterms look a little bit better for them. They currently look terrible. I understand why the wall is high, and you hear it in my voice right now that there's a lot of uncertainty that's out there. If I think about the second part of the question, which is you know what can the market sustain, I would point to a couple of areas in particular, high yield and kind of the zombified company dynamic, which represents, probably 15 to 20% of the Russell 2000 at this point. If you're not a company that's making significant profits at this point, like the odds are very low you're ever going to make profits. Um you know, those if I look in the high yield space and in particular if I look at the characteristics of how much my interest or my debt service costs are going to go up from a refinancing at this point, recognizing that my last refinancing, the typical duration for five year or 10 or for, for a high yield bond is somewhere in the five to seven year time period. And you typically want to refinance that anywhere from two to three years prior, right? Because you don't want to get yourself caught in that kind of crapshoot of the last year or two. Um, if I look at the refinancing costs today, They've risen so dramatically that as a couple of people have pointed out, we've had no high yield debt offerings or refinancings for a couple of weeks now. That's very unusual. It tells you that effectively management teams are doing the equivalent of, of gambling that they're going to get more attractive entries. Um, and that makes sense if they really can't actually afford the higher refinancing costs, right? So, you know, again, just to put it in perspective, a bond that was issued in, let's say, July of 2020 you would have, as a high yield, uh, uh, a typical high yield um, borrower, paid anywhere from three point nine to four point five percent, right? Today, that's going to cost you anywhere from six. I think it's about six point two to seven point five, right? That's a huge jump in interest expense for a heavily levered company, and I'd suggest that most of them can't handle it, right? Um, and we're we're seeing that in the markets. It's creating conditions under which junkier, lower quality companies are beginning to underperform again, um, particularly if you adjust for sector. Um, you're not seeing participation from any of the commodity-oriented names. Um, you know, With oil prices pushing dramatically higher, you're seeing multiples compress as compared to expand, um, which reflects, I think, the expectations that this is a very short late cycle. I actually just pulled up US Steel the other day. It's trading at 1.9 times earnings. Um, admittedly, it's quite levered and has you know some of its own characteristics. But the markets are very clearly saying, we are late in this cycle. And it's not at all clear that the Fed can get away with what they want to. Now, will they choose to pull a Paul Volcker? And I, I somewhat push back against the narrative of pulling a Paul Volcker as you've heard me talk about before, you know, and choose to crash the economy in order to fight inflation, it feels like that might be in play. I don't I don't think they'll do it, but that's certainly what the forward curves in rates are suggesting. That's certainly what the language that's coming out of the Fed is suggesting. And a number of very astute commentators have highlighted this risk. It's you know, This is one of the first times I would argue that the Fed is going to be forced to kind of make a choice. Now, again, for me, the irony is I look at the inflation and I say, that tells me what happened. Is that inflation likely to persist? Um, Porter Collins of The Big Short you know, has a, has a um, tweet out highlighting the results out of Home Depot, which is their average ticket up somewhere in the neighborhood of 12.5%. While volumes are actually down almost five percent, right? That to me is exactly how it's supposed to work, right? Prices go higher, volumes fall. It makes it easier to solve a supply chain problem with higher prices because demand is deteriorating. That deteriorating demand is simultaneously saying, I need less workers because the price going up doesn't mean I need any more workers, it means you know that I need fewer supplies, etc. And as People often, as, as I certainly say, probably far too often and far too cavalierly, the you know the solution to high prices is high prices, right? Um, it destroys demand; it takes care of itself. If the Fed were to step in and raise interest rates, I, I, I you know, other than destroying the labor part of the economy. And destroying, you know, reinvestment confidence that may very well be required to start the process of reshoring much of the production that is increasingly um, at risk in a relationship with China. I, I, I just, I, I don't see the logic behind it, right? I mean, I, I would almost be encouraging us to do the opposite. And the other thing that I've, I've said very clearly is like, where in the hell did the scientific method go, right? We've now been through multiple cycles of quantitative easing and quantitative tightening. We've now been through multiple cycles of raising interest rates. And at no point in this process has anyone stopped and said, you know, hey, how about we change one variable at a time? Let's try changing one at a time to see what happens. It, it, it's remarkably uncurious if you, if, if you ask me. So,
0: well, right now, Mike, aren't we, not only is the Fed not following the advice you just said, it's... Actively going against it because it's it's turning all the knobs it or plans on turning all the knobs at the same the same dial of of stopping quantitative easing hiking rates pretty much every meeting and in addition potentially doing quantitative tightening so I mean you know how big of a risk for the market do you think this is and you know where are the different vulnerabilities you talked about uh, high yield companies which you know comprise the Russell two thousand which is small cap uh, stocks. But, you know, is, is this going to affect the apples? You know, Apple, they don't really need to refinance, right? You
1: no, know, so that's part of the argument that I would make broadly is, is that the companies that are most likely to be most adversely affected by this are precisely the ones that everyone is currently enamored of, right? If you slow the economy and you solve the problem of excess demand for oil relative to the current level of supply, guess what's going to happen to oil prices? They're going to crater right? Um, They're not going to stay at 93 or $94 a barrel. They're going to fall to 55. And suddenly the, you know, marginal energy producer that you look at and say, oh my gosh, there's such an incredible bargain at $95 oil. And can you imagine how much money they're going to be printing at 120? They're back to losing money at 55 bucks. All right. Um, That's what we saw in the fourth quarter of 2018, right? Um, So I, I... I I, I I just can't kind of shake the image and it's very disappointing to me of, you know, Tom Cruise in um, um, Risky Business, you know, going to his parents' stereo and, and, you know, the amplifier just pushing everything up, right? You know, it's, you know, that's not exactly a centrally planned economy, but boy, does it make for an impressive, you know, musical display and dancing in your underwear, right? Which kind of feels like where the economy might be, dancing in its underwear, I know everyone wants to hate on the large cap tech, right? That like Apple and Microsoft are, you know, kind of gross in a lot of ways, right? Google, it's kind of gross. The risk to them is, to me, not so much investor selling as much as it is, you know, the risk of a true regulatory reform, right? That, you know, the the an FTC action is announced against Apple or an FTC action is announced against Google that becomes quite substantive. Um, but this is, this is part of the challenge, right, of a world that is dominated by passive flows because I go and I fire, you know, the thoughtful manager who says, wow, there's really a tail risk that I think is significantly mispriced of oil going to 150 or $200 and that we're stuck in this environment. Um, and those investors just mechanically are being replaced by buying the index. And so, you know, what I what I really am watching, and what I'm always trying to pay attention to, is what's happening to those flows. And we just continue to set in place a regime that reinforces those passive flows. They're up this year at a pace that is on par, near, nearly on par with last year's record-setting pace. Right. So it's just it's it, it, it's hard to get too bearish on those names until I see that dynamic change.
0: This episode is brought to you by BCB Group, Europe's leading provider of crypto-friendly business banking for institutions in the crypto space. They also provide trading services, allowing you to trade FX and cryptocurrency quickly and at scale. They specialize in efficient execution of large orders in illiquid markets. So if you are an institution looking to make high volume trades, you need to check out BCB Group because a great trade idea is worth nothing if you can't execute it. And that is exactly what BCB Group helps you to do. Their mission is to empower the global financial revolution through sustainable and innovative banking. Really glad to have them as a sponsor. So if you want to take control of your digital assets, please check them out at bcbgroup.com Jack. That's BCB Group. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Mm. Yeah, I I really want to zoom in on this passive dynamic. Perhaps, you know, a a lot of viewers here at Blockworks are are into crypto. So I'll I'll choose a, a crypto analogy, which is... An active investor is someone who says, "Oh, Ethereum—they have this new protocol. I'm going to buy a lot of it. Um, oh, Cardano—I'm I'm not so sure. Maybe I'm going to sell it." But they're actively thinking about their their their, uh, their allocations, whether they are right or wrong. They're they're processing new information. Whereas a passive investor would be just be someone who would you know buys $10 worth of Bitcoin every single day, regardless of news flow. And actually, uh, or someone who buys $10 worth of a crypto index that has all of the crypto protocols in them or a major, major basket of them, that would be a passive investor. So, uh, Mike, what happens when 25 percent of what happens when 10 percent of investors are passive investors who are buying $10 worth of the crypto index every day? What happens when it's 25 percent? What happens when it's 40 percent? And and what are where are we now? 45 percent?
1: So I'm gonna take a tiny bit of exception with your description of passive um, and just highlight that there's a, a paper by Bill Sharp who won the Nobel Prize in Economics, 1991. It's called the Arithmetic of Active Management. It's somewhat used as the Bible for those who rationalize why it makes sense for the average investor to index. It is very simply, it points out that by definition, all passive investors have to own if they're buying in proportion to the market cap, Index, as you highlighted, they have to have the same portfolio as all the active managers in aggregate. And therefore, the only difference in performance is going to be the fees that are charged. And since fees are lower for passive vehicles than they are for active vehicles, a passive investor will outperform over time. The, The problem is, is if you actually read that paper carefully. The definition of a passive investor is actually quite important, which is a passive investor is someone who never transacts. Right now, the problem, of course, is that means that your definition of a passive investor is somebody who just buys $10 worth of Bitcoin every single day. They're not a passive investor. They're an active investor that just has a ridiculously simple outcome. And that's what's actually going on with the vanguards and black rocks and retirement funds in the United States and increasingly elsewhere around the world is that we do not have passive investment. We have ridiculously simple algorithms. And the algorithm for passive as it's constructed in the United States today is, do you have a job? If you have a job, then money is withheld from your paycheck. That money is flowed into Vanguard. Vanguard's algorithm is, did you give me cash? If so, then buy. Did you ask for cash? If so, then sell. Since passive is gaining share, that means they're not ever getting the sell signal on net and all they're doing is continuously buying. But that process of going in and buying influences the market. It affects the behavior of the market. There's no condition under which you can tell me that it doesn't.
0: Right. right. And, and Mike, sorry, when they say buy the S&P 500, if Apple is 6% of the S&P 500. For every $100 that goes in, they're going to buy 6% of Apple. So what effect does that have?
1: So the the that's one of the more interesting dynamics is, is that the construction of the indices are built on a float adjusted market cap, right? Now, the vast majority of public companies now have almost all of their float outstanding. So it's not that material in terms of that dynamic, but that presupposes that liquidity scales with market cap. And I just want to emphasize what that means. It means that your ability to enter and exit something that is a trillion dollars should be, give or take a hundred times greater than something that is $10 billion, right? Just 10 billion to a trillion. Unfortunately, the data suggests, the, the empirical evidence suggests that's not how it scales at all. That liquidity scales with a combination of volatility and volume. And the actual liquidity difference between Apple at $2 trillion and the smallest company in the S&P 500, which I believe is somewhere in the neighborhood of $20 billion today, right, is not 100 to 1, it's more like 5 to 1. right? So Apple is five times more liquid than that company that is at the low end. And what that means is when Vanguard shows up and tries to buy 6% of that $100 that you put in, or $6, or let's make it more like what Vanguard actually bought last year, which was somewhere in the neighborhood of half a trillion dollars. Half a trillion. right? Half a trillion dollars, $500 billion worth of inflows into Vanguard last year, somewhere in that neighborhood. That means that if they were all buying in the the S&P 500, they're putting in $30 billion into Apple. And I know we live in a world in which 30 billion doesn't sound like an awful lot, but that's a crazy impact. That's a huge sum of money. Um, and so it forces Apple up paradoxically more than the small company, for example,
0: right. And, and you right. may think, oh, thirty billion dollars of apple of money into Apple stock that's going to impact the raise the raised valuation of Apple by thirty billion dollars Not so, right? It could there's a, there's a multiple, right? And so maybe you can, can you tell us about what's it called the the inelastic markets hypothesis,
1: yeah. So the inelastic market hypothesis is basically an a, is basically academic literature that came out in twenty twenty. Um, by, Gebe, by um, Xavier Gabay at Harvard and Ralph Koijin at Chicago, both brilliant, absolutely you know, a million times better at math than I am, and have developed some techniques for teasing out these components. Um, traditionally, when you think about the dynamic of what's called the efficient market hypothesis, it was always presumed that transactions had very little impact on prices. And you can understand why that is, because by definition, if I buy, you have to sell. Right. And so the net money that goes into a market seems like it's de minimis. The the real contribution from Gebe and Koijin in my modeling work suggests that they actually are understating it, particularly as it relates to passive, um, is that they've recognized that it appears that money going in has a much higher multiplier than anyone had ever presumed. And so the traditional analysis would suggest that a dollar in would create about a penny of increase in market cap. The data today suggests, the data from Gabay and Koijin suggests that over the period that they sample, it's about $5 increase in market cap for a dollar going into the market, right? So give or take 500 times bigger impact than had previously been assumed under an efficient market hypothesis framework. That's an uncomfortable margin of error, right? my data suggests that you can further segment that into index funds and active funds. And the key difference between an index fund and an active fund or a simple algorithmic strategy and an active strategy is the ability to hold cash. Right. So if if I am an active manager and you give me a dollar of cash, I can theoretically hold that dollar saying nothing looks attractive to me. I'm going to wait for a better opportunity to buy. Passive vehicles don't have that option. And as a result, they are effectively what I would describe as high-intensity purchasers, and that multiplier appears to be dramatically higher. And as passive gains share, the market becomes more and more inelastic. Again, more academic literature that came out in early 2021 by Valentin Haddad at UCLA highlights that dynamic, the changing inelasticity of the market. And again, I think he's actually underselling his, the, the results of his work.
0: Mike, I, I'm looking at a, a chart now and it's uh, from from the paper you cited. And it said that the 95% conf- confidence interval is something like a 15 times multiplier, so $30, uh, uh, $30 billion into Apple. And and what would that be? Uh, uh, um, $450 billion, yeah. right? Yeah, $450 billion, uh, the price going up. Um,
1: Market cap, market cap, market, yeah,
0: Yeah. yeah, not, not the price, um, market cap going up. It's my understanding that you think that that multiplier can go even higher, right? Tell us about how high can that multiplier go and also, um, uh, what are the implications on the selling side when there's, when there's a complete loss of, of when it's, you know, it's too many sellers and not enough buyers.
1: Well, so, so, so first of all, I would just highlight that this actually has huge ramifications for the crypto space as well, right? So there's often debates around things like what is the impact of Tether? Tether's market cap is somewhere in the neighborhood of $70 billion. And people's argument is, well, that can't possibly be that important relative to a 2 or $3 trillion crypto market. But when you start talking about these multiplier dynamics and the dynamics of what hodling actually is, which is to raise that inelasticity, that multiplier we're talking about is just a measure of inelasticity. How much does price have to change for an increase or decrease in supply and demand, right? Um, that, if I think about that multiplier in its extreme form, right? So now let's just imagine a world in which there's only two types of investors. And I, I want to emphasize this is a very simplified world. Your typical active manager will carry around 5% cash. Right. So if you think about a really simple model in which there's only a thousand dollars invested in the market, by definition, that means that there's nine hundred and fifty dollars of equity and fifty dollars of cash. Right. If I switch that to a 100 percent passive, your typical passive fund carries somewhere around 10 basis points, 0.1 percent in cash. Right. So if you think about that model. One way of thinking about it is to say, okay, let's just assume it's totally de novo. We've got a thousand dollars invested. Therefore, there's nine hundred ninety dollars invest, nine hundred ninety dollars invested in, I'm sorry, nine hundred ninety nine dollars invested in equities and zero point one, you know, one dollar invested in cash. The problem is that that is a static picture that doesn't consider the evolution. And so if you actually think what's happening is something that's really important, which is that we're moving from active to passive, that gives you a very different answer. If I take a market that is 100% active and I transition it to one that is 100% passive, that process of doing so means that I'm firing investors that have an affinity or relative affinity for cash and replacing them with investors who hate cash the only possible but the market is closed right there's no money going in or out so the cash has to remain unchanged i buy you sell the absolute value of the cash in the market remains unchanged So where does the cash go the cash doesn't go anywhere that's exactly the point the only solution set is for an increase in valuations right and so when you actually walk through the math under those assumptions that five percent transition to zero point one percent the only possible solution is, is that valuations rise at least 50x, right? So we're talking Schiller PEs of 900 sort of thing, right? Um, 800, I'm sorry. Um, that's obviously absurd. Well before we get there, the volatility of those sorts of price changes create the event that you were referring to, which is a crash of, of undescribable proportions. And again, you can just think about that in the simplest form. Now imagine that you inhabit that world where it's 100% passive, right? So there's 50 times, so $50,000 worth of equities against $50 in cash. And just so people understand how extreme this is, the world's largest passive vehicle is the Vanguard Total Market Index, um, which has somewhere in the neighborhood of $1.6 trillion in assets across its various share class forms and has minus $100 million of cash, right? So it has no cash, it has negative cash. If a market in that type of structure encounters a redemption, the only way that that redemption can be met is not by paying out cash, but by selling securities in order to obtain cash. And then the problem becomes, well, who do you sell to? Because there's nobody else left, right? New money has to find its way into the market. and that tends to be at much, much lower prices. And you can reverse engineer this at 90%, 80%, 70%, 60%. And that's where you get this dynamic of the increasing fundamental volatility, right? It's the same, many people have done a very simple predator-prey type analysis, right? Where you evaluate the, the life cycle characteristics of a community that has you know wolves and rabbits, basically, or wolves and moose sort of thing. Um, when the predator becomes too large, population collapses. And that's all we're describing here is we're losing the liquidity. We're losing the ability of the markets to respond to demands for cash or infusions of cash. So effectively once you put it into these hodling farms, right? Uh, these 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 uh, you know once it's inside Vanguard it's effectively hodled. The only way it comes out is if Vanguard experiences a redemption, right? Or they change their waiting schema or something else, right? But for the most part you can almost treat that as those as insider shares. And that is part of the dynamic that's going on. And exactly like what happened in 2000, when the insiders ultimately decide that they're going to sell, you know what the picture looks like.
0: Well, haven't we started to see that already with insiders selling a lot of stock?
1: Uh, well, we've seen crazy amounts of insider selling. Um, you know, Again, this is one of these reasons why the system has a self-regulating feature. The higher something goes in price, the wealthier and more share, the more money that is available for the insiders to sell and the more money that is required coming in from the outside in order to keep the system stable and propped up, it becomes very hard, right? You can't get to these extraordinary extremes where the market is 100% passive, et cetera. But it does help you understand the evolution, the likely evolution of uh, pricing, price behavior um, in the markets.
0: Okay, thanks for describing that, Mike. Now I want to turn to um, active ETFs, which are not passive. They are uh, making investment decisions, but they still have this flow dynamic where, when investors flow in, they have to sell stocks. uh, They have to buy stocks. When investors flow out, they have to sell stocks. Like, let's take for example, um, Kathy Woods ETF ARKK. You know, they currently own 8.82% of this company called Beam Therapeutics. When money flows out of ARKK, they have to sell that. Um, to what degree are those dynamics that you've described still in play, despite the fact that it's you know an active? In other words, in what in what, other, in, in what words do you, um, does your criticism concern ETFs uh, a little bit more than it concerns passive?
1: Kathy Wood is a really interesting experience um, because it's not so much that she was active, and I don't really have an issue with active ETFs dynamics. It's that she grew so large that her flows actually became the determining factor of the performance of the companies that she owns. So she was reinvesting the proceeds of incremental share sales of the Ark ETFs, right, which raises cash. It's effectively an inflow of cash into the vehicles. It goes into the um, it goes into the market, right, and they then need to deploy that into buying these smaller less liquid companies and in the process of doing so they pre- they're forcing those prices higher. Um, what transpired is is that became a game that the minute the flow slowed or reversed, you were going to see the opposite impact, right? And so that's just a, that's just a situation that I would describe as crowding. It's a component of a single investor behaving in a manner that I would consider somewhat irresponsible, right? The right solution is in one form or another to shut the funds or to diversify um, your approaches um, so that you're not creating these underlying conditions where you, know, you have extraordinary, um, extraordinary crowding of holdings. She's not the first investor to do this, right? We've seen this in the mutual fund space. Um, Bruce Berkowitz at Fairhome got trapped in Sears. Um, Other players have gotten trapped in various names. Sometimes it works out. Sometimes it turns into an epic disaster where there's just a mismatch between the liquidity, right? So I don't actually think it was the ETF structure per se that matters as much as this is just a situation of somebody was given too much money too fast with an inability to properly manage it. Mm.
0: Uh, that makes that makes sense um and to what degree do you i've you know i've heard you say before that you think that arkk you know could be on the brink of being oversold and that there could be a little bit too much um bearish just there do you think that there are structural dynamics in play You know, if the flows have stopped going to arkk i think maybe they still could be positive but the rate of change is is tremendously negative um you know is, is this something that an ETF sort of can, can get over or is it is it you think uh, there's another leg leg down? So
1: my gut tells me that, that Kathy Wood is done, um, but it's going to take a long time for that to play out. Right. So remember, there's always investors that just don't pay attention, that experience loss aversion. Right. So they don't want to take the loss. Um, even if it's the right thing or the tax advantage thing to do, right? So, so there there will be an element of limping along for an extended period of time. Things like the Janus Twenty and the Munder Net Net funds were ultimately merged into other vehicles. Um, my general sense is is that. In this case there may have been a little bit too much flying close to the sun. And so other people have highlighted the fact that, that what's happening to Kathy Wood looks almost identical to the sell-off in the Nasdaq one hundred in two thousand and that it's tracking very closely and would we'd be somewhere in the, you know, summer of two thousand two sort of framework if if it's equivalent. I actually don't think that's a terrible analogy, but I but I think that it's mixing an apples and oranges characteristic, right? So the Nasdaq 100 is an index as compared to a fund, right? And my expectation is is that Kathy will have negative flows for probably the rest of her career. Um, it'll have been a very profitable experience for her, but you know I would be surprised if Ark itself survives. Now, with that said. Um, Many of the names within that universe, I'm beginning to get the sense that people are selling them without being particularly thoughtful, right? So I, I don't know what's happening to Overstock today, but for example, we just saw that the New York Stock Exchange, actually the ICE parent of the New York Stock Exchange, just took an equity position in T0, which is a division of Overstock. Overstock itself has a relatively profitable business selling online online. Uh, Whether that's sustainable and and will remain as profitable as it was during the pandemic, I think is somewhat skeptical, but it's only trading at like 14 times earnings, right? So like, how much am I going to get myself worked up over the outrageous overvaluation of something that actually has fairly significant potential on that? I, it, it's hard for me to get too wound up in the idea that it's a truly terrible idea, right? I have no idea what the valuations for, for DocuSign or TeleDoc or any of these other things are right now. But I will tell you that these are products that do appear to have staying power. And you know, the critical message from the NASDAQ 100 experience was that many of these companies actually emerged as extraordinary world-changing enterprises and many of them completely failed right so like i do think that she has a component of the disruption right i just don't think that she's going to be the player that gets to ride off into the sunset successfully on it right she flew too close to the sun she's gotten burned those sectors are likely to struggle for an extended period of time but man i just i, I don't buy into the world view that like exxon Mobil is the next great growth company i i just don't
0: so, may I ask, so, what are you constructive on at this juncture, or you you're you're kind of not constructive in a lot of things?
1: you know it, it, if there's an area that I think is particularly interesting, it's fading the the current pricing in bonds, right, at the front end. Um, you know if i if I were to highlight things like the the Fed funds contracts or the euro dollar contracts for december twenty twenty two that are pricing in seven hikes, currently a little bit less than that right now with very elevated levels of volatility you know the break even on a um December euro dollar put at 9850 so December 22 the EDZT easy EDZ2 98 and a half put is pricing over 50 cents right meaning that you need to have 3 month rates at 2% by the end of the year to you know over 2% by the end of the year to break even and that's hard for me to buy into
0: yeah You're going to have to listen to a lot of uh, podcasts about inflation for that to make sense to you. (laughs) Well, what it what it tells me when you see this sort of behavior and you're starting
1: to see the wobbles at the top, like it typically tells me that somebody got caught on the wrong side of selling that put too early. Right. So when the Fed in in 2021 tells you we're never going to hike until inflation is out of control and everyone expects inflation to retreat by the by the end of December 2021. The temptation is to to view those puts as free money, right? So, okay, I'll sell it for 3 cents, 2 cents, and just print that money. Well, those are now priced at 60 cents and they were as high as 72 cents, I believe. Um, That sort of behavior tends to indicate that somebody tried to stick those into their desk drawer, hide the losses, ignore the losses. Professionals don't like taking losses any more than retail does. But every once in a while, you know, your risk manager comes over and says, yeah, you're out, right? You, you know, I don't care whether you're right fundamentally, we can't carry the, the risk of this position, which has gone from a two cent option to a 60 cent option, meaning it's 30 times the budget that was on your, your portfolio before, Right very, very few people can survive that type of dynamic. And it feels like part of what's actually transpired with the speed and rapidity of the curve flattening, with the speed and rapidity of the move that we've seen, the implied volatility levels, um, that people are being forced out of those positions, forced to seek buyers in a market that doesn't want to provide them. Like that, that's where I highlight those. Like that's what I'm looking for when I'm, when I'm saying, you know, you want to sell volatility on occasion. I want to find a situation where people are forced to buy it. And then I'll turn around and say, okay, now I'll sell it too.
0: Mike, to what degree do you think the epic drawdowns we've seen in Peloton, Zoom, uh, uh, DocuSign, uh, you listed a few, to what de- degree can those drawdowns be laid at the feet of passive investing or is it more to do with the macro regime? And also, going forward, you know, how vulnerable do you think uh, the the market will be, and particularly those individual stocks will be to to passive dynamics, and in what ways?
1: If I look at something like Peloton, right, um, I, I would broadly highlight that both the rally and the retreat could not have happened in a world in which Peloton was not aggressively held by passive, right? So if I look at the ownership of Peloton, for example, um, you know, the largest holder is Bailey Gifford, uh, which is actually the, I'm willing to bet that that is the um, international uh, growth fund for Vanguard, right? So Bailey Gifford manages. So there's a passive flow component there, even though it's an actively managed vehicle. T-Row price is target date funds, then Vanguard, then BlackRock, then Capital Group, which is target date funds. Then obviously Tiger is active. Fidelity is about 85% passive at 2%, etc. So so you start running through this, and you recognize that like a high proportion of the ownership of Peloton exhibits this characteristic of inelasticity. And then people show up, and they're like, "Oh, we've solved the problem. What do you buy during the pandemic? The same. You buy the company that everybody is buying their product. Everybody wants to be on a Peloton." And then the process reverses. Right. And so you've also introduced Kathy Wood. Right. So Kathy Wood was a, a natural buyer of this disruptive technology, et cetera. Right. I, I don't actually know what her holdings are there. But you, you see this sort of behavior where there is inelasticity, right, where nothing you do is going to get Vanguard to sell to you. And yet a whole host of active managers are running around like chickens with their heads cut off trying to figure out what the answer is, right? Like, well, okay, what can I feel comfortable buying and explaining to my investors why I bought it? Well, I'm going to buy Peloton because the fundamentals are improving so dramatically, right? Then when they go to sell, having seen the fundamentals explode the market doesn't have the liquidity that you would imagine for a stock that size and you start forcing the prices lower and it turns the momentum negative. And on the next dollar that comes into Vanguard, they buy less of Peloton than they were buying before. They don't sell, but they buy less. right? And so you're now trying to sell more, Vanguard's trying to buy marginally less. The net impact is you start forcing prices down lower and lower and lower. I think that's part of, I I think it's a critical component of what's largely played out here. And I think the great irony is that, you know, everyone wants to focus on this and say that, um, you know, there's something surprising in terms of the dynamics of what's, what's transpired with Peloton. Like they sell bikes and they sell membership services, right? Um, once you own the bike, that large component of the revenue is primarily gone, you know. But that that illiquidity means that the price move is going to be much worse than it was before, right? Um, and and I, I think that's largely what's happened. I just think it's fascinating that underneath a market that has barely moved, right? I think the S and P is give or take ten percent off of its all time high we have legions of stocks that people will be able to point to that are down 70, 80, 90% in situations. And, and I just, I, I find it interesting, again, going back to, to the commentary that's made earlier on, it's like, people are more convinced than ever, like everything's going down, even as things are already down 90%. Like that just, it feels disingenuous to me. Um, you know, I I could be wrong. And and some very, very smart people, including my friend David Einhorn, for example, have made the very good comment that, you know, a, a stock that was ridiculously overvalued doesn't become fairly valued down 50%. It may just be slightly less ridiculously overvalued. Um, that's definitely true for some stuff. But I also think that there are some interesting single stock opportunities that are emerging that in the current mantra, I think people are not paying enough attention to mm
0: and would those be in the particular like the, the tech sector the the sectors that have been most I'm more on?
1: drawn to the I'm more drawn to the tech sector than I am elsewhere in in those types of analysis right
0: uh, and you're more constructive than I had anticipated on uh, let's say Apple and Microsoft you know given uh, give it people who are crit- uh, critical of passive or who note that the the vulnerabilities within passive typically you know, uh, a tribute to Microsoft and, and Apple that they've been a huge beneficiary of these passive inflows. And you're kind of like the godfather of of, of criticizing passive. So well, no, I, I, I want to emphasize, I think that they are in a bubble. I think that they are the most affected
1: by this bubble. And I think it's completely insane that the dominant cell phone company, which is clearly a mature industry that's not growing rapidly, Um, The largest market is going to become increasingly unavailable to Apple in the form of China, right? Like we kind of know the evolution of a lot of these things. I think it's completely insane that they're valued where they are. But I don't see the flows changing, right? So I just don't care that much right now. Um, At some point, the Piper is going to have to be paid on this stuff. But I'm not seeing the evidence that says it's...
0: Now and tell me about the inflows because I, I saw you know there was a huge amount of inflows throughout 2020 and 2021. Is it slowing down now? To so what degree is the Federal Reserve responsible for the huge amount of uh, um, money that's flowing into stocks via the portfolio channel? So I think the Federal
1: Reserve is less important than people think. Um, Ways that it does affect it, right, is more on the credit side than any, anything else. So if I think about the dynamics of repo, like you're not really using repo to lever equities, right? A lot of the behavior that you see in the market in terms of people's willingness to lever exposures, etc., are conditioned on things like realized volatility. And so as realized volatility has risen, risk budgets, by definition... Are tightened in, right? The you're managing you're managing your portfolio on a value at risk metric. If realized volatility is higher, then your portfolio is perceived as more risky. You can't run the same degrees of leverage. And again, I think that's a big chunk of what we're seeing is, is yes, flows are coming in, um, but they are being deployed with less leverage. If I look at things like vault targeting strategies, which are very common within insurance companies, for example, where they they are managing to a expected level of volatility and using the realized volatility to drive those dynamics, it creates a very pro-cyclical component where right now their allocation to equities is very low. right? So relative to what we've seen historically, those have already sold. And until we actually see see an event that requires those flows to reverse that are currently coming into markets, I, str- I, I genuinely struggle with how this plays out in the way that everybody kind of wants it to, right? We want the crash. We want the, you know, the Germanic, uh, you know, um, guilt to, to kick in and we want to pay and suffer for our sins. Like that will come, but it's just not in the flow data yet. And, and it's really hard to make that happen because of the dynamics of how we manage these things. Mm.
0: Very interesting, Mike. Uh, a lot of people have developed different strategies to shield themselves from uh, on the risks of passive investing, and in some cases, take advantage of them. Uh, your strategy is very interesting. Um, you know, you have a, we can't talk—I don't think—individual products, but you know, with your work at Simplify, um, you have a something. You have a strategy where a lot, you know, vast majority of the fund is in. Um, uh, the, the SPY, the, like the passive index, or maybe it's a, the Vanguard, so it's cheaper. I think, um, and then you also own extremely, extremely deep out of the money put options, which is the right but not the obligation to sell. So like it's it, essentially it's it's uh, not it's not car insurance, it's tank insurance. It's it's extremely f- extremely cheap out of the money convexity. Um, why is that strategy something that you favor as opposed to some of the other strategies uh, um, that people who uh, uh, think about passive have developed?
1: And I'm actually going to be doing an interview on Real Vision um, with uh, um, Hari Krishna, mm-hmm. Krishna, and um, Ash Bennett, uh, yeah, yeah. You. Yeah, yeah. Ash Bennington, who have who have written a book, Market Tremors. Um, Hari's book, I, I, I can't see it yeah. on your shelf, but I believe <laughs> you that it's there. Um, Hari has written a book, The Second Leg Down. Right, other people's, uh, you know, I'm interviewing. Um, Professor Cam Harvey of Duke, who has a book out on hedging techniques, we we actually have a credit fund that we've introduced some of the techniques that I've been using for years that are also echoed by Professor Harvey as alternatives to vol expressions. And so the, the, the really critical component that I would highlight is, is that um, any product that you see me involved with is going to have both a systematic component of hedging associated with it, as well as multiple strategies. So our flagship product, we have both shorter duration, nearer the money puts. We also have longer duration, deep out of the money puts. Uh, the argument behind it is fairly straightforward. The, the implication of the growth of passive is that it biases the markets to drift upwards, while also raising the risk of extreme price movements downwards. Right. So if you think about that distribution that Nassim Taleb highlights for everyone that, you know, the tails are fatter because it's an exponential distribution. That's actually not entirely accurate. The tails are fatter on the left side. Right. So in other words, the, the skew is becoming increasingly negative in the market. The actual central tendency of the market because of the drift of passive, that dynamic of, of rising 50x in valuation has created conditions under which the distribution, the center of that distribution, the modal outcome, the most frequent outcome, is actually now quite positive. right? And so the argument that I give people, and you've heard me use this language, is we are driving uphill with no brakes. And so the only reason, you know, what I tell people to do is, you can't get out of the car, you can't quit driving. This is particularly true for the registered investment advisor space where Every time, you know, the, the idea that you're going to pitch caution and, and, and safety to your investors leads your portfolios that you've constructed for, for them to meaningfully underperform, which just means they're going to fire you at the worst possible moment and replace you with somebody who's way too aggressive. So the strategies that we've developed are largely designed to allow you to continue to participate, to stay in the markets, but have a safety, you know, have a seatbelt and an airbag So that things really go pear-shaped you're actually sitting in an advantage position able to pick up pieces in a way and walk away from the crash in a way that others might not and that's really where opportunity is created um you know in in my analysis those options are still mispriced although less mispriced than they've been at various other times in the past right i mean going into the events of march 2020 it was perverse how cheap those were today those are a little bit more expensive. And so, we're having to work a lot harder to find attractive ways to hedge downside protection for investors.
0: Mike, I believe you know you joined Simplify after March 2020. So, this is not really a question about, about um, the strategy that you're doing now. But you know, hypothetically, a portfolio starting, let's say, February 1st of 2020, that had 98%, let's say, you know, 98% uh, S&P 500 passive, and 2% deep out-of-the-money put options where, I don't know, the implied the vol- volatility, I'm just going to make a number up, on those extremely left-tail options was 40%. You know They made a lot of money because the S&P 500 went down a huge amount, and then also uh, you had vega exposure where the implied volatility went up. So how much uh, a drawdown would that portfolio have, if at all, because of just how much more valuable those puts would have had? I mean, I don't know if anyone watching uh, is watching who had puts uh, going into March, 2020, but it was, it was incredible how much those things went up in value. Yeah. I mean,
1: it it is extremely path dependent, right? So the unique characteristic of 2020 was March, 2020 was the speed with which the market fell and the degree to which volatility rose, right? So just to actually give you real numbers around it, those options going, if you had bought a, you know, 12 month put option, um, on January 1st of 2020, my guess is you would have paid somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to 27 vol um, for that one year put option. Um, that spiked to around 40 um, by March 2020. The closer in, the nearer the money, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the shorter tenor options, you know, if you had bought for March 31st, you would have paid probably 18 vol. Um, and that went to 80, right? So just an extraordinary explosion. And the more, But the more important point was actually the delta that it picked up. In other words, the price change difference because of the 30% drawdown characteristics in record short time. Uh, if I look at a strategy, just hypothetically, that was 98% long in the S&P and had 2% in the options that are similar to the structures of, of our products, it absolutely would have had a drawdown, but it would have cut that drawdown by about two thirds. And again, that was facilitated by the speed and, and aggressiveness of the decline, right? So slower decline is harder to defend against. Um, the, the other benefit, of course, is that then gives you cash inside, if you own those puts, and importantly, if you own those puts inside a fund, it allows you to redeploy them in a tax advantage manner right? And so that's really the core of the strategy. I'm not trying to protect people against you know, the end of the world with the objective being to them to have a pile of cash at the end of the world. What I'm trying to do is give them exposure to US equities with the ability to benefit from a drawdown so that they're better positioned to redeploy the proceeds of those puts in a tax-efficient manner. Because ultimately, I don't see... I I, I don't see the system that we have in play changing until there's a truly catastrophic event and that feels further off. Like, we're just not there yet. It feels, as crazy as it it sounds, like, I think there's a very reasonable chance that by the end of this year, we're back, you know, well past the the highs that we started the year at. That feels insane, but there's a very real chance that's right.
0: You know, how are you thinking about monetizing puts so that, you know, you don't have a huge increase, uh, the puts increase in value, but then as the market rebounds, uh, they go back down to zero.
1: Um, so we have rules around monetization that, that we've established and and we use both a systematic and a an active manager, a discretionary overlay associated with that, right? So part of what you're, you know, trying to accomplish there is bringing the years of experience and the understanding of the dynamics of the market in play. And I would just highlight things like, You know, in March 2020, one of the really critical events was on March 12th, 2020, where the Fed aggressively cut rates, causing um, 10-year bond yields to collapse to 33 basis points. The real pain happened after that, right? So, understanding why that event was transpiring, what caused it to shoot down. It's basically the mirror image of what I had just argued on the on the euro dollar puts, effectively, somebody was on the wrong side of a trade, blew up, there needed to be an exchange liquidation, and, and that created conditions for a risk off in bonds and in equities that was catastrophic, that was the real problem that we encountered. Um, you know, so so we have rules around monetization, and I would just highlight. And anyone who's seen the movie The Big Short, you know, I, I referred earlier to Danny Moses or to uh, Porter Collins. Um, you know, there's that scene where Steve Carell is sitting there, frustrated that he has to take profits, right? That like he doesn't get to see the end of the world, right? Because the end of the world means there's no counterparties to pay him out. And that's the simple reality of of this game, right? Like you don't get to sit and bet on the end of the world because guess what happens at the end of the world? You die too, right? So th- this is never an objective where you should be sitting there saying, you know, um, I can't wait to dance on everybody else's graves and, and have made so much money in the collapse of the universe because there is one solution for the person who becomes rich in a collapse, which is your peers kill you and take your, your proceeds, right? It, just, it sucks, but that's the way the world works.
0: And, and then you also have a product where you have that downside convexity, but you also own calls on the upside, the right, not the obligation to to buy, um, which gives you, you know, conve- convex upside exposure. Um, so can you tell me about the importance of that? As passive
1: gain share, there's a positive drift that is uncompensated in the market that is irrelevant to market makers who Delta hedge those exposures. They're effectively trading the convex instrument as well. Um, And and that creates conditions under which those can be super, super attractive. So, you know, strategies that involve selling call options have broadly been poor. Um, Strategies that buy call options have been pretty good. And what Harley is really highlighting in those trades is that you're actually locking in exceptionally cheap financing that allows you in a non-recourse leverage way to control a large quantity of notional. And you know this is where the overlap with central banks and fiat currency and everything else emerges. Will central banks actually allow equities to crash? Probably not, right? Um, will they step in and remove quantitative tightening if markets begin to crash? Probably. Will they engage in balance sheet expansion to restart the system again Probably. Right. And so all of those create conditions under which that leverage can be quite attractive.
0: Um, Thanks for that. Do you have uh, five more minutes, two on, on the new credit products and then three on uh, crypto? Uh,
1: sure. Two minutes on the credit products. So we introduced some new credit products that are designed to hedge out the credit exposure component. They are, they do not hedge out the rate component exposure. And part of that is honestly my take that rates are unlikely to rise as much as the market is currently pricing. So I actually like the duration aspects of it. Um, the But the, the broader component is, is that we have deployed a unique strategy for mutual funds or ETFs, where we've actually constructed an equity overlay that is designed to um, behave in an inverse fashion to credit spreads, while offering positive carry characteristics, and so those those two products that are out—one representing the high yield index, one representing the uh, Lehman bond aggregate—we've separated out and tried to hedge out those credit exposures. Whether you know how successful that is, it's been it's it's off to a great start. I'm I'm enthusiastic about it. We'll see how that plays out. You know my argument is very straightforward on crypto. It is a speculative asset. It's not a store of value. Um, I don't know that Bitcoin is going to fail. My analysis of the system says that it is going to fail. It's a negative NPV asset. With that said, crypto more broadly, this idea of digitally native securities is incredibly important. right? I mean, my wife constantly gives me um, a hard time because I've got you know, a few physical shares that I own, right? That my mother actually bought for my kids as decorations for their room in one form, or, you know, as as various forms of gifts. And the irony is, is that because these things are in paper form in DTCC, the the, uh, uh, central clearing facilities, like still operate in paper form, I get checks for like three cents and I get tax forms for like 16 cents, right? And uh, you get these crazy outcomes those go away when you start to move to digitally native securities. And we are in that transition process. And this is part of the problem with any revolution is, is that there's a combination of, you know, huge scams that are going on, but it requires a kernel of truth that sits at the center of it so that it doesn't sound completely implausible, right? I mean, if we were selling reservations on spaceships to Mars, There'd be very few takers, although I know that that sounds incredibly exciting to people, but what we're actually saying is, hey, we're gonna completely reinvent the financial system because it doesn't work. And wouldn't it be amazing to buy in and get equity ownership of TCP IP, right? To use the, the language equivalents. Well, that's just a stupid characterization of what's actually underway, right? You're buying a speculative token that is paying the accountants in the system when you're dealing with Bitcoin, right? To maintain the sanctity of a blockchain that preserves your transactions in this permissionless, you know, uh, non-censorable uh, system for every future government investigation in the, you know, that exists in history to check out who behaved in a seditious manner. Like what's happening in Canada, if you remember, this is exactly what I told people was going to happen. You'd raise your hand and say, Hey, guess what? I'm a traitor. Right? Like, I'm not saying you are a traitor. I'm saying that's how the government is going to interpret it.
0: Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Um, Mike, is there any way you could just summarize your views in maybe you know 30 seconds to a minute? It can be about inflation, a rates, equity, passive, you know, whatever you think is most important. Okay, so the
1: 30-second summary. Um, broadly speaking, I think that most of the inflation that we're seeing is transitory. It's a frictional dynamic that's associated with shutting down and then trying to reopen an economy. It's akin to an older person getting out of bed and feeling the aches and pains even as they're well-rested. Um, we're doing everything we can to exacerbate that through bad policy, but you know that that appears to be the core of the issue. There will be a component of persistence associated with it, as things like OER, etc., have slow-moving moving averages associated with them. That means that this will persist at higher levels. But we're already beginning to see the goods um, and inventories pile up. We're beginning to see the clearing of the ports. Maybe not to the degree we we want to see, but that that is happening. Um, as it relates to the Fed actions, like clearly the Fed is is boxed in and politically has to act. I think it's a mistake. I think they'll be forced to reverse that relatively quickly. Um, all of those combined to create, what I would suggest is is relatively short-term opportunities for markets to be fundamentally bearish. And I continue to think that sometime in March we'll have a, creative, a, a, a low that is lower than what we experienced in January on January 24th. Um, but from that point, I start to get pretty bullish. And I, 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 I struggle with, you know, how the world um, looks that bad from a financial market standpoint. The one thing that I've started talking to people about that I'm really, really concerned about is what's happening in the emerging markets and the developing world where the shortages of things like fertilizer, et cetera, are setting up conditions for persistent shortages of foodstuff that have very minor impact on inflationary conditions in the United States and developed world, but have a catastrophic impact in the developing world. Um, so I'm, I'm paying close attention to that. So ho- ho- hopefully anybody who tuned in and listened to us for this long just jumps to that 30 second summary and and we can move on. Jack, this is fantastic. I I enjoyed it very much. I do yeah. have to hop off. Thanks so though. much,
0: Mike. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. People can find you on Twitter at ProfPlum99 and uh, can find your work at Simplify. Mike, thanks so much. Thank you.